Blog Talk Radio.
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ravenda, with MZN Indie Radio. And uh, we are here for another great evening, uh, another great show. Uh, if you were all tuning in yesterday, um, you were able to listen to our tribute to Tupac Shakur. And we have some great guests talking about their experiences with him, including today's guest, Mr. Donald Tave from the band Lakeside. You all remember them. Um, we are continually uh, doing a lot of great shows, but we don't always do shows involving music. We also want to bring some awareness to a lot of different topics that are something that affects everybody in this country. So I chose to uh, go with this particular topic because I understand there is a lot of, it, of the, uh, the cancer affecting people who are not effectively uh, researching the disease, they're not checking on their medical conditions, they're not getting the right information from their doctors. So I wanted to bring in someone who had experienced the disease, uh, someone who people will listen to, of course, in addition to some medical people. Um, Mr. Tavier himself has had the experience of um, prostate cancer, and um, I am so happy to have him here today to share with you all uh, a lot of things about it that nobody knows about. And these are things that he's learned on his own, um, unfortunately, because he had to be a victim of it. But he's going to take that, you know, that tragedy that came to his life and that crisis to turn it around to something positive to help other people. So we appreciate him for coming in and, and doing that. So first we're going to have him come in and just give you guys some information about, you know, what, what, um, his career was like and, you know, some things like that with the band, what they're doing. Then we're going to talk about uh, the information we have today for prostate cancer. So, Mr. Tavi, are you on the line with us now? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Welcome to Indie Radio. I can hear you very clear. Okay. I want to thank you so much for giving up yourself to come out and share this this personal information with our audience, and hopefully they will take heed and, um, you know, try to work it out for themselves. So thank you so much for coming. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure, you know, hoping through this conversation, uh, you know, I can enlighten a lot of brothers about uh, just men in general, about uh, what I had to go through, um, which turned out to be very successful. And, um, you know, and, and just enlighten people of options how how it really works. Well, we're going to definitely um, discuss that. Um, but let's um, just refresh the memories of all those people who are, you know, they, they just don't know how blessed they are to have you here. Tell us about Donald Xavier and Lakeside. Yeah. Um I've been with Lakeside 29 years. I uh, came in right right after Fantastic Voyage. And um, I've been playing keyboards and singing lead for the group. And uh, we're very, very busy and very appreciative for all the support that we've been getting around the world. Uh, I was, it's amazing because, um, you know, I, I came into the music industry out of high school uh, actually, I started in high school because I had a band uh, at my high school. I went to a private school down in San Diego, San Diego Military Academy, and sports was really my objective. Um, I uh, excelled very high 
highly in sports, especially track and football, basketball, baseball. I mean, I was doing it all. And um, once I uh, got to the end of my uh, high school days, I became the first black battalion commander in the country of all military establishments. Not military in terms of the armed forces, but military academies. And uh, I was scheduled and appointed by the government to go to West Point. And uh, by that time, I was kind of burnt out, and music was really my heartfelt desire as opposed to uh, the military. You know, by that time, I was just... I had been in military establishment, the establishment since the seventh grade, so from seventh to twelfth grade, uh, I thought I had served my time. And um, although I had this accomplishment to go to West Point, and I would have went into West Point as a major, which was really unheard of, especially for a, a black cadet. Um, but. I had another burning desire, and that desire was for me to do my music. And uh, I had things I wanted to express through my music. And uh, I had um, uh, an opportunity to get hooked up with Quincy Jones at that time. He had a workshop here in L.A. called uh, the Quincy Jones Workshop. And out of that workshop, you have a lot of people who are doing well now in the industry. Uh, from Brothers Johnson uh, and on, and um, I uh, I started pursuing my really started focusing on my music career coming out of there, and uh, then I was introduced to Stevie Wonder, and then you know I just God just started putting all of these uh, people that I grew up uh, being influenced by and admiring uh, in my path, so I knew that I was. Uh, going the right route that my spirit needed to go. And um, I started doing the things with Quincy and Stevie, and then I got hooked up with Lakeside uh, right in 1981, 82, when Fantastic Voyage was uh, the biggest, one of the biggest songs in the world. And um, it, it, felt, it felt good. The guys, you know, took me in like I had been with them forever, um, and they had been together since junior high school. A lot of people thought that Lakeside was a lot older than they were, but these guys were out of junior high coming to Los Angeles and having success, not just high school. Um, so I've been on tour with them ever since, and at the same time I've been doing my own thing, which has led me to produce and work with some of the most uh, prestigious musicians and singers and entertainers in the world uh up until today i'm still doing it and i'm also pursuing my own music uh trying to get my own music out there uh i think you have a copy of the song cha 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 which is my latest single um i have a cd out called best kept secret that you can get on itunes or napster or rhapsody or any of the major downloading sites uh, you can go on Facebook and or you can Google my name and get a link to almost everything that I'm doing. Oh wow, you're just <laughs> amazing! <laughs> oh wow, I mean I know that the experiences that you have with these artists that we we've, we've only been able to listen to and see on TV, 
And that must have been really great for you, especially Stevie Wonder. I mean, can you tell us how, how it was to work with him? Uh, Stevie was a little different. Um, uh, <laughs> because <laughs> the hard thing about working with Stevie is he was one of my biggest influences, you know, singing and music. My three major, well, my four major influences in the music was first was Smokey Robinson. Then it was... Marvin Gaye, which stuck with me probably more so than anybody, then Donnie Hathaway, and then Stevie, and in that in that in that in that order, and it was um, I started to even working with Stevie, I started to develop my own sound because everybody you know coming up and working with Stevie, everybody said, oh, well you sound like Stevie, or this song that you're doing that you're writing sounds like Stevie, and I wanted to get away from that because I wanted my own identity. I never I never felt that me being true to the art was me, was me mimicking somebody else because of their success. So it kind of makes me have to, you know, dig a little harder and uh, think a little smarter on creating my own sound. And what I decided to do was just take what I liked from Smokey, what I liked from Stevie, what I liked from Donnie, what I liked from Marvin, and, you know, and put it in my own pot of gumbo, <laughs> for lack of a better word. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just create my own sound, my own taste, and that's what I did. And it was great working with Steve. I mean, I still see him every now and then. Um, it was different because I was in awe all the time. The cool thing is, and, you know, after I would go visit Steve, I would go sit with his engineer because I wanted to know how he was, you know, from a technical side, which, I'm, which I've gotten very good at, is I would learn from his engineer how certain things were done. The same thing I did when I was uh, working with Quincy's Click is I would always go in, after we'd sing in the studio or record something or in the choir, I would go sit with the engineers and ask questions, like a tech head is what they called it. But see, in turn, what that did is gave me an advantage of developing my own sound from a technical standpoint because I knew how to create sound without having to ask somebody to do it. I already knew how I wanted it or how I wanted it to be. So I've learned how to do it myself. So today, now, you know, people are coming to me like I was going to them, you know, asking me, man, how are you getting this sound to be like this? How are you making this sound so wide, so fat? You know, how are you doing it? And that has always kept me abreast of a lot of other entertainers is I always kept up with technology. Uh, and I have a lot going on in the technical world. Uh, I'm one of the um, uh, workers for Roland Corporation, so I do a lot of technical stuff for them. I demonstrate a lot of the equipment. I've just created some of my own equipment that I'm trying to get the Roland Corporation to do a marketing and distributing on. What I invented was a wireless, stereo wireless system for instruments, and it comes in a dongle key. And what I mean by dongle key, you just plug it up to your keyboard. It's a size a little bigger than a light cigarette lighter, and you can plug it up to any keyboard, and it makes it wireless on any instrument, and it makes it wireless, but in stereo. So I do wow. things like that. I mean, you know, I'm, I try to just stay on the cutting edge of everything that I do. Wow. Oh, I can't wait to, to hear the buzz about that. Yeah, it's, 
getting ready to hit the market real soon, probably wow. after the first of the year. It'll be on the market worldwide. Well, I'm sure a lot of people can benefit from that. You know, I know a lot of artists that are always looking for a new technology, you know, for their um, their performances, and that sounds like that would be something really great to use. Right. Wow. Now, in regards to, you know, what what the industry is like now compared to what it was when you first started, has it been effective on your career, um, this this drastic change that we've been experiencing? Well, I think what happened, what has happened is given more artists, from the artist standpoint, an opportunity to to get their product heard and and appreciated, not only by what is being dictated by the record companies. I think that power has gone from the record companies because now artists have the vehicle of the internet like your station and other indie stations, which allows us to play stuff. And people should like you for you, not because a record company is conditioning you to like a certain song by putting it in rotation 30 times a day. So, you know, it's like telling the dog to sit. As long as you keep telling him to sit, he he's going to get it every time you say sit. Well, that's the same analogy as playing records. You know, hits aren't written like they used to be. They're played. So people learn to like something out of being conditioned to like it, not by choice. And the Internet gives not only the music connoisseurs the choice of what they like and what they don't like, but it also gives an opportunity to independent artists to have a platform for their music to be heard and not go have to go through the politics of what a record company wants to promote and what they don't want to promote. So we have the opportunity to promote it ourselves, to make the money ourselves without being in debt. When you first go to a record company, the first thing you're doing is you sign in debt. You're putting yourself in deep debt with a high interest rate. You get all the frills and the thrills of being a celebrity, but nobody talks about how much money you owe that record company for blowing you up or you know, putting so much marketing dollars in you. On the average, it takes uh, 0.5 to $3 million to break an artist in the, on the competitive level. That's a lot wow, of money. Wow, that's a lot of money. It's a lot Ooh. of money for me to be in debt from, from the start. Before I'm even a successful artist, this record company has invested 3 or $4 million in me. So that's how much money I owe the record company. The record company's not doing this because they like you per se. They're doing it because mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a smart investment. So that means that mm-hmm. the first dollars that are coming off the top from the sales of your product, the record companies are getting. So after all the bills are paid, whatever's left, you might get. So now, since we have this, this, this wonderful cyber vehicle, this cyber freeway that we can put our car on and roll all over the world and connect with everybody in the world that has a computer, and now since technology is getting away from physical product to software product, everything is software-based now, computers, uh, your cell phones, your iPods, everything's digital, so it's no longer a physical CD that you have to obtain to hear product. You can go online, download MP3, MP4, and listen mm-hmm. to it in your car, in your house, wherever you want to listen to it. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a great move for us as artists because, like I said, do I want to sell records to everybody that listens to my local radio station 
or do I want to sell it to the billions of people that I can connect with via the Internet? So it's really kind of... That's simple. right. It is. Okay. I mean, and you're reaching them, you're reaching a global audience when you're on the Internet because there are so many people from all over the world that are able to get access to your music without having to actually be at a concert. Right. You know, that's right. the biggest thing. That's probably why a lot of, you know, concerts are not happening the way they used to because exactly. people don't have to go. They can't afford to go, for one thing, because they, yeah. they go up on the price of the time with the economy. And right. then if, you know, they don't have to go, they, if they if they go, like with me, I haven't gone to a lot of concerts because I refuse to pay like $300 to sit in the front row. I refuse <laughs> right, to do that. Okay. Well, I don't want you throwing no lights on me and no sparks, and I don't want you sparking on me, spitting on me, and none of that stuff. I'm happy in the middle somewhere, but you really can't see nothing. But if you go with what your your pocket can afford, you're up in the sky somewhere. You might as well be home. Well, you know, it's funny so, that you said that. It's funny you said that because two weeks ago, um, for those of you who are listening to me in uh, in Los Angeles. They uh, did a show uh, a few weeks ago at the Greek, which is a major venue here in Los Angeles, and they had five of us on this show. I'm glad you made this point, but I'm getting ready to say something. And probably the promoters don't say <laughs> it, but it is what it is. Um, they put five major acts in the show. It was us, Morris Day in the Time, Lakeside, Morris Day in the Time, Barcase. Climax and Slave. But when we hit the stage, each one of us only got 20 minutes of performing time. Which to me is an insult. And what I mean by insult, that's not fair to the buying public. Because if you're spending $75, $150 on purchasing a ticket to take you and your date to a concert, then I want $75 or $150 worth of performancing. I want to see these groups. I don't want to I don't want to see them walk out on the stage, turn around and walk back. I want to physically see these groups do a show. That's what I'm paying for. But what's going on is these promoters are pimping these artists. They're pimping us. They are using our names to sell these tickets but they're not giving us the time to do what we'd like to do. Because I think, uh, I can speak for all the groups, that we would all rather do a full show each and give people their money's worth because we want them to come back and see us again, as opposed to just walking out, waving hi to everybody and turning around. We were here, so technically we did appear, but that's not what the people were expecting. And now I think that is giving us the concept of us as true artists to promote and market our own concerts, not go through these major corporations that are talking about, you know, putting us in different these major venues to promote us. Because the you got to look at this. You had five major groups. The concert started at 6.30. The venue closed at 10 o'clock. That means the show stopped at 9.30. It's theoretically impossible to have five major groups do do a show in a three-hour span. So that's not fair to the public. So I think that us as artists, we need to start taking into consideration to promote our own concerts 
and give people their money's worth. At the same time, we're making more money promoting the concert than we're actually making walking out on stage. So why can't we uh, put both of those concepts together and do our own thing instead of giving the money away? Well, I believe that you can, and I believe that you there's ways that you can reach a widespread audience without actually having to have the budget to go all over the country physically. Right. There's right. some ways that you can do that. That's something <laughs> you and I are going to talk about later because um, it's something I, I had thought about, and you when you brought that up, I was going to um, talk to all the, the artists that I know and um, give them this, this, this information to we can work on something to help that happen. So that that's something you and I could talk about. Okay. Now, I wanted to ask you, um, in regards to, you know, how the fans react to what we what we call old school bands is basically people that we grew up with. Right. You you call it something different, but we call, call it old school. school because, <laughs> right. We call it old school because it's something we grew up with. You right. know, it's something okay. that part of our life growing up. So right. how how are you received by the fans um, that grew up with you and the fans that are just finding out who you are? Uh, we get, you know, it's funny you say that because most of the concerts, we get standing ovations constantly. And the reason being, because, pardon me, the reason being is because old school music brings back old memories. And that's the difference. The real music that most people grew up with, or even the old school music for that, even the mechanical stuff, it had a spirit about it because there are certain things that happened when you heard songs when you were a kid growing up or the certain girlfriends that you had or boyfriends that you had or just situations that you were going through at the time when back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s when you heard certain songs. So when you hear that song, it takes you back to that memory that you've held on to all those years. And when you hear that song, you go right back to that young spirit that you were experiencing back then. So there's a joy about it, or there's a pain about it, like um, May says, like Frankie says, joy and pain. They go hand in hand. So people want those memories. They want they want something that's going to take them back to what they were doing in high school or what they were doing in college when they heard certain songs or when they were listening to certain artists. You know, um, and pe- the only way you're going to relive that is to go see that artist perform that song, and when you hear it, it automatically takes you back to that. And that's what people get out of our concerts. That's what they feel. When we do Fantastic Voyage, everybody goes back to that, that 1981, 1982 era. That's out there of of age. You know, they really get a kick out of it because they remember at all the parties that they gave that that was the number one song that they danced off of. So they just get a kick on when we do It's All the Way Live or when we do the ballads, Yes and Real Love and Giving in the Love or something about that woman or, you know, whatever song we do. We do we do two hours of nothing but hits. And that's something that doesn't exist with a lot of groups of the groups today. You know, you have very few. You may have somebody like Beyonce or, or Mary J. Blige who has two hours of nothing but hits. But when you look at the ratio of how many artists are out there versus how many hits they had to be able to play it in a row, not too many people have that capability. So the old school artists 
who have been in the game long enough, who have put in the work, who have had the success of many hits, can do a whole show of nothing but hits. And people just enjoy that. They enjoy that because, like I said, the memory is there. Definitely. Definitely. Well, I believe that um, things will change over a period of time because a lot of people still have no idea how to grasp technology and the way it can affect them and help them in their career. So over time, I think we're going to be, you know, getting the hang of it, but then we'll be in the next stage of technology. And who's to say what they have up their sleeves now, you know, that they haven't shared with the public? Um, as far as distribution, the distribution of music has changed tremendously. And I know of someone who's working with um, um, a very well-known producer and artist on, on this particular project, and it is going to it is going to just pretty much take away from the majors altogether because it's going to put the power back into the artist's hands as far as right. distribution. Right. So um, I understand that there are some big name companies that are trying to to get their foot in the door with this person to to be able to, to grasp that little percentage or whatever they're going to get out of it because they know that once they make they make it public everybody's going to want to do it, and everybody's going right. to to get the majors. Exactly. You know, so, exactly. Because you're basically only going to them for distribution and promotion. Right, you know? exactly. I mean, well, see, that was the whole they thing. don't do nothing else. That, they never did. That was the whole thing. See, people got to understand the record companies were always middlemen. There was never a um, a company that that had everything in-house. When you go sign to Motown or you go sign to CBS or Sony or Capital or EMI, none of that was all in-house. What it was is when you signed to the company, they would subcontract your contract out to um, uh, distribution, out to publishers, out to production companies. Everybody was subcontracted by one conglomerate, which was the same thing that you you can do yourself today. So basically, you just you're in control of your product and how you're going to distribute your product. And now all you got to do is create a marketing plan because the difference of radio, billboards, and internet is that you have to create some kind of vehicle for that's going to a marketing strategy that's going to cause people to see it, understand it and have the technology skills to get to it to buy your product. As opposed to, yeah, it was easy getting out your car, pulling up to uh, the lady, uh, 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 the record store, walking in and picking out a record, a physical record. But now that it's in the software world, now you have to figure out how am I going to get everybody on Facebook, everybody on MySpace, everybody on Twitter, and all the other social networks uh, through cyber world to be able to sample, listen to your product, and drive them to a website that they can buy your product. That's the trick now, is marketing on the Internet. And once we... And believe me, out, it's not as hard as you think. It's not as hard as you think. No, it's not as hard. No, it's not. So that, I'm just basically saying that that's, that's, the, that's the way we have to go now. So it's all about how do I market on the Internet? How do I do cyber marketing? But the cool thing well, is I don't owe anybody. I don't, I'm not in debt. That's, 
Yeah, that's a good thing now. <laughs> a lot <right>? in debt. <laughs> and right, and they know you get fifty cent, and they get fifty cent, or you get ten cent, and they get ninety cent. Right. You get everything that you that's supposed to come to you, all of that, and exactly. and you have your own but. And you pay for your own um, team or whatever, you know. So you, I think the problem is a lot of people don't treat their their art as a as a uh, business. I mean, it's just too much of a. It's grassroots and that's fine, but it's still a business if you want to make money off of it. Because grassroots right. means you know you don't really care whether you make money. You just love playing music and you just love people to hear it. But if you want to make money out of it, when that comes into the game, that means it's a business and you have to treat it like a business. You can't look at it as it's my hobby or my whatever I like to do. Exactly. So that's I think I, you that's know, the biggest problem. All the artists that I produce that are green in the business, the first thing I tell them is what is this called? It's called the music business, and that's exactly what it is. It's business. It, it's it's not about your talent. It's not about. I mean, you listen to the radio, and it that definitely backs up what I just said. It's not about talent. It's about <laughs> <laughs> it's about creating a product that's viable to market. That's all. That's all they're looking at. They're not looking at. How great of a singer you are! How great of a writer you are! They're not looking at that. They're just looking at: Do you have a product that we can market and make money off of? It's just pimp mentality. You know, they got everybody conditioned to buy a blue pill. Don't bring me a red pill, even though we know that red pill is probably better than any blue pill they have. Because they're not going to re—they're not going to recondition the people that they have buying that blue pill. That's the mentality. They're not going to do that because it's money that's consistent. It's money that has already been established in these conditional listeners to like this product. Even though you may be a better artist. It's it's funny because it's always been like that. The greatest artists that I know are not being heard. They're not in the big marketplace. They're not. So it's not about talent. It's just about, hey, do you fit in this genre of marketing that we got going on? We got everybody hooked on this blue pill. Bring me another blue pill. Bring me another blue pill. So everybody ends up sounding alike. Everybody's mimicking each other. All the singers are singing alike. All the writers are writing the same beats. It's the same old, same old. There's no identity. But that's where you fall short because what happens is you end up selling your soul for quantity than giving your all in all for quality. And that's the difference. Artists from from the 50s, the 40s, to the 70s were about quality. When disco kicked in and the industry started pimping a different way, it changed and became quantity. So from that era of the 80s when the drum machines dropped in and everything became computer-based and mechanical, it changed, and the quality is gone. So you don't have the Shaka Khans. You don't have the Patti LaBelle's. You know, you don't have the, the, the great singers and the great arrangers and the great writers, even though we're still around, but our product isn't being marketed because that's a different color pill. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes down to, you know, people who are no longer with a major label, 
and they're independent, if they have not created any type of budget to, to have to be able to continue with this, then it's like they're back at square one. Exactly. Because I've come across a lot of artists that I've used to listen to all the time, and, like, they're down to, like, reducing their, their performance fees, and, and they don't have the, you know, the, the now that we have Internet and everything, if those people never really learn how to work the Internet, they got to go build a whole brand-new team to get right. back into this so-called game. Right. And then they have to have a budget. And then if you're if you're trying to compete from 1985 with somebody right now, like Trey Songs or, um, you know, Common or whoever is, like, really up there in the charts, they're not going to risk putting you up there compared to those folks. No. So when it comes to the radio, they're not going to be playing yours like they would play theirs because those people are the ones being requested. And, right. and not, not a lot of people be saying, I want to hear that old song. If you got your own station now, that station has to promote you, the one that plays the oldies. <laughs> right. And nobody but wants see, to be on the oldies when they got new work. But see, you know, but see, that's the problem with the United States is everything is in a category. When you go over mm. to England and London, like like uh, a few years ago when I released a Donny Hathaway remake, on I, I did an album with uh, Pete Bryson, Fisher, and Angela Bofield, and we did it, uh, uh, Norman Connors' album um, called Eternity. And um, I didn't get a lot of love here in the United States, especially on the West Coast, of the Donny Hathaway remake I did. It did well in Virginia and in Philly and in Detroit, Chicago. It did well in that area. But when it went overseas, it went through the roof. I was number one for five weeks in Europe. But my point is, is that overseas, they have a, a knack for being eclectic on the radio. Because it's not about putting music in categories. Music is music. It shouldn't be put, this is R&B, this is pop, this is neo-soul. You know, they gave R&B a new name on it because artists started fusing jazz and R&B together, so they called it neo-soul. We're always putting things in categories, which actually doesn't bring music together. It separates. So certain stations, their format is certain genres of music when it should just be played and let it just just do it eclectically. Let people listen to a station and they may hear a, a, a Marvin Sapp record and then they may flip up and then it becomes a, 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 a Erica Badu record, then it becomes a Beyonce record, then it becomes a Common or Nelly. You know, it's just eclectic. And that's more of a way of reaching masses of people than it is putting things in categories when you separate mm-hmm. artists. Because people don't listen to music the way they should. They listen to it because they're conditioned to like it. Not mm-hmm. they have a choice. You know, if you listen to the same radio station every day, you end up liking something you didn't like the first time you heard it. Oh, it I know that's right. All the time. Yeah. It didn't <laughs> get any better. You just was conditioned to like it subliminally. Mm-hmm. And that's just how... That's right. Television is like that. You see a commercial mm-hmm. all the time because you subliminally have messages inside of that, 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 that commercial that tell you where to buy it, when to buy it, and how mm-hmm. to buy it. That you don't even see because how it, good goes it, is. Through, it goes through the, the film so fast that only the subconscious mind picks it up. 
And that's the same <laughs> thing that happens in music. I know because I hear a lot of songs that, you know, didn't make any kind of sense, but I find myself just repeating it. Somehow I'm like, exactly. why is this song in my head? Exactly. You know, because like, that was happening when I was, they, I know they pick times of the day and, and, and certain times of the year to really just give it to you. Because I know during rush hour, when I'm stuck in the car and I got the radio on, I, I ain't like I can go for so far to hear something else other than to change the channel. But I mean, you're driving to work. You're only going to be gone for like 20 minutes or an hour, so you're going to hear whatever's playing back to back, back to back. Like our Philly stations are good for that. They play the same 10 songs every hour, the same thing. So it's like it's in your head now, and you can't help but know it. You know, well, you I understand exactly. Not to cut you off, but my question is: if we're the innovators of music like we are why didn't it get better i don't i don't i can't fathom that i can't understand that i can't understand why musicians didn't get better why are we settling for a box that has no soul but yet though we call ourselves soul artists you can't mm-hmm. be a soul artist programming a computer you know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't understand why, as as influential or as we are as a people in everything we do, from sports to medicine to whatever we participate in, we innovate it. We make it better, just because of our connection spiritually and just where we just where we are as a people. In our survival skills, we always find a way to make something work. Mm-hmm. Why? I think. Why doesn't music get better? Why didn't our music get better? After the '80s, I mean, after the late, the early '80s, it got worse. Mm-hmm. It got worse. We stopped writers stopped writing real songs. People start coming in and writing songs with no imagination. It's too explicit. There's, it doesn't leave you room to think about how I want to do my girlfriend. It tells me what to do to my girlfriend. So that takes <laughs> the mystery out of it. When you take the mystique out of something, it becomes boring. And that's what has happened in music. They've taken the soul and the mystique out of it, and a lot of it is it sounds the same. It repeats what everybody else is doing because it was a hit for this person. Let me do the same thing he did. That doesn't give you any identity, and it doesn't make you a better musician. When they started taking music out of schools, why? Music is, is, is not about the note that's being played. It's about the life that it influences. So why would, we, why would we take something out that influences our lives as a whole? Music is the universal language. Music is something that I don't care what uh, ethnicity you come from, what language you speak, you understand music. And the reason I know that is when uh, about 10 years ago, we went to Japan and we did a tour in Japan. Now, Lakeside, we have 13 CDs, uh, 13 albums recorded. We went mm-hmm. to Sapporo, Japan, which is the northern, uh, the northern uh, um, area of the, of the country, Japan, and it's right on the border of Siberia where you would never think Lakeside was known. 
when we came no. off stage, <laughs> now those people don't speak a bit of English, but when we mm. came off stage, there was a line two blocks long in snow. <laughs> every person in that line had every Lakeside album for sale for us to sign the autograph on, for us to autograph. Two blocks long. So you're talking about a good 200 people standing in the snow with their arms full of 12 albums wanting us to sign each album. They don't speak a bit of English, but they know every Lakeside song. They can sing, they can sing Fantastic Voyage, of course, with no R's and no W's. <laughs> but they can sing Fantastic <laughs> Voyage from head to toe. So you can't tell me that music is not a universal language. It's something that has nothing to do with where you come from. It has to do with how it, those rhythms and those beats and those tones touch your spirit. And that's what draws you to it. That's why it's the universal language. So how we as a people let it get worse? How do we start depending on machines to dictate what we do? If you listen to a lot of white music, they're still doing the same thing, guitar, drums, and bass. They're not playing drum machines. The Rolling Stones, perfect example, they're still getting paid a million dollars a night to play the same thing they were playing 50 years ago. They did not change format. So why are we sitting down chasing drum machines and changing the creativity in our music for quantity, not for quality? Mm-hmm. And we got to get back to what, what, what made us, what makes us. And what makes us is being innovators. We've, we've discovered as a people, we've created, we've invented so many things on this planet that, had, that has changed the world's life. Go back to a straightening comb. Hello, sisters. We invented that. We invented the iron. There's so many things that we've invented. So why are we getting away from from being the innovators? For quantity, not for quality. And that's what I got a problem with. We got to get back to real <laughs> Well, so. it seems to me that in certain aspects, um, and, and we can go um, mix that up with politics, we pretty much leave it up to somebody else to make decisions now um, to tell us what is good and what is not good. And I think that's where the problem lies. People are not taking the power into their own hands and deciding they don't want to hear this on the radio, so they're not going to listen anymore. If, if we if we turn those radios off and demanded that, you know, for us to turn it back on again, that we would have some good music coming on there, the, the people who are in control of that, We'll get out there and start grabbing up these real artists, you know, these exactly. really great, you know, talented artists. It's, it's funny the same with politics. It's funny because I had this conversation with uh, Patti LaBelle one day. I was playing behind Patti and um, um, Teddy Pendergrass, and I had this conversation. Is I couldn't understand why somebody as talented, as great as Patti, as great as Teddy was, as great as Gladys was, as great as Shaka was. I even had this conversation with Shaka when I was doing the project, uh, the Prince project, is why you guys don't have a record deal? Why we as true artists who have put in the work don't have record deals? You mean to tell me that 
if record companies put their focus back on patties and shockers and um um and 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 Gladys, the connoisseurs of real music, you mean to tell me they wouldn't support that and buy that? It's no way that would happen. Of course they would. So you're dealing with a with a generation of people that aren't getting the music that they can afford to buy. You have all these radio stations that are so hip-hop, uh, uh, hip-hop-targeted that they've given old school a certain amount of hours or they're not on that station at all. Right. But there are so many old school artists who are still putting it down, like us, like mm-hmm. Cameo. You know, like Charlie Wilson had to do. He could have did the same thing with the Gap Band. Don't tell me, and these are three close friends of mine, don't tell me that Charlie Wilson couldn't have sung and performed the same songs with the Gap Band and been appreciated. But, no, record company said we need to create a new identity because that's identified as old school. Hello? But he went and put a band together that he's out touring with that the Gap Band could have done the exact same thing. They could have played the exact same songs. They're not that hard. These are real musicians. They can play whatever you put in front of them. Play the same songs, and it could have been the Gap Band that has the success that Charlie Wilson had to do by himself. And God bless him. God bless Robert, his brother that just died. But... Mm-hmm. It didn't have to go that way, and it doesn't have to go that way with any of the old school groups. Radio format should play new product by the old school artists just like they play new product by the new school artists. Right. Because we have not lost our skills. We have, And the way you can prove that is let's take it to the stage. Put any of these new school groups up against the old school artists who are still putting it down like us, like Cameo, like Ohio Players, like Infunction, like SOS Band, like Brick. If you go see it, you'll understand what I'm talking about. It still feels good. They're not cheating by playing a computer. It's coming from the artist that wrote and performed it from the gate. And it's a whole other feel. It's a whole other experience. Mm-hmm. Well, it's live music. They don't. They use DJs and you know right. music right. that that is is created from machines and not instruments. So exactly. They, and and that saves on a lot. I think people just don't budget properly. They don't. They don't do enough research when it comes yeah. to doing their shows. That they don't have enough money to hire a live band. And I, I think a lot of these R and B artists should have the the old school artist bands that have the best bands and the best instrument playing musicians backing them up instead of some darn DJ exactly. or some, you know, show disc. You know, exactly. bring out the bands. Put them to work. Get them behind you. That makes you sound better. Right. You know, well, it's funny but, because um, the same songs that you're sampling <laughs> is from the old school artists. So, hello, right. record companies. You know, you still got to pay us because you're paying us for our samples. But why right. you, Why did we leave the record companies in the first place? Why did you get rid of us because you thought we was getting old when we still are putting it down, especially with no threat? 
Because if you do most right. new school, unfortunately, you know, because of that element and because of the immaturity that comes with that element, there's a uh, uh, insurance policy that has to be taken out every time you put on a new school concert because of what might happen. But you don't right. ever have that problem <laughs> with old school artists because we're mature enough and we've been through that and we know how to conduct ourselves and why we're there. We're not there because I said it's there. We're there because we're there to support the artists that we like listening to. So record companies, hello, why did you even get rid of the, 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 the old school artists? That's because you put a label on it, and I keep going back to this. Mm-hmm. we got to quit putting, putting people in categories because that's separation of something that we all do, and that's create music. Mm-hmm. we got to get out of that mindset and be more eclectic about it and let people buy something because they like it, not because you're trying to control it. That's all it is. The record companies are trying to control what they want you to listen to and buy. So they condition you to buy what they play, what they want to play. But that ain't what I want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then they wonder why the Internet radio is um, pretty much right. growing so fast. Because people have so many options and they have really great music to still access without having to listen to a ton of commercials and without, you know, having to uh, try to find it. I mean, now everybody's music is on the Internet. So all you do is put in the search engine who you want to hear. It takes you right to whatever channels are playing that music, and there you go. And you don't have to – you can actually get all that from your cell phones now. You can put it on your computer. You, I mean, your, your iPhones, everything. Everything is making it where you can get it mobily. So you don't, you have other options outside of regular commercial radio. Right. And then you have all the music you want to hear and not the same 10 songs all day long. Right. You know, so they, that's why they're having a big problem because all the money they did get, they went and just put it somewhere else, which had nothing to do with music. And now they're, they're in danger of losing any future money because of all the new laws. So it was in their hands to do it right the first time. If they didn't do it right, you know, whatever happens, happens. But it opened the door for other people. So other people now have access to do the right thing, what they didn't do. And and it's not costing somebody an arm and a leg to get it done. Right, exactly. You know, it's what not costing do, what, 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 I like see, now we're finding out it didn't cost an arm and a leg from the gate. That's just what they charged us. And they right. were making they an arm and a leg profit. Because people didn't, people weren't educated about the actual business of it. They would just take it in at, for the love of the music. They didn't do the research on the business part and, and why is this person getting 60%, you getting 40 and And you thinking, well, they offered me a million dollars. I was living in a car, you know. <laughs> so right. 40% sounds good to be right about now because at least I can buy a house, you know. Right. And you have to think beyond whatever they offer you today. What's going to happen when they don't want you anymore and they got another artist and they, and all that money that, that they put out for you, you still got to pay back because you don't even see no 40% anymore because you might have spent it all up. Mm-hmm. So now you're in debt and then you don't, they're just dropping you and you just not, you just out there. You got to start from scratch. So people need to educate themselves. If they're going to be in this industry, they need to educate themselves about how it runs because right. it's still a corporation. It's, a yeah, it's still called it's a not, music business. It's not a family meeting. It's not a family meeting. It's a corporation. Right. You know? Yeah. It's just what you got to do. So, but what I like to do now is play one of your tracks. I'm going to play the Cha Cha song. I love that. And just so okay. you know, 
I get a lot of response from it from like the website that I have it on for my step competitions, and everybody likes it. So I want to. Can I say one thing before you play it? Can I say one thing before you play it? Can I? Yeah. Yeah. What I wanted to do to, to tell everybody that's listening is if anybody has any questions about what we've been talking about, please call in or chat in so I can answer the questions. I kind of want to make this a question and answering session as well. That would be great. So and if anybody wants to do that, call the number 347-237-5050, and uh, we'll be happy to take any questions you have. Any, if you want to just say hi to Donald and show him your love, that's fine too. Um, when we come back, we're going to actually go into the main subject of our conversation because we want to educate um, people on some other topics that are, um, you know, affecting your health and your life. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead and play the cha-cha song, and we'll be right back with Donald Javier.
Wow, that's a great song. I was thinking about stepping because I, I don't know how to do that. I think I can do the bop still, but I don't remember. I don't know how to do any kind of stepping. I, I'm going to take lessons and use your song. As <laughs> okay. Uh, um, it looks like it's a it's a big thing now. Well, it's probably been big for a while. In fact, we're doing something on it, like a documentary on the, the origin of stepping and as well as um, how it's affecting the African-American um, um, culture and community. And I found a lot of different information out about it, but I, I'm amazed I don't know how to step. <laughs> wow. I think everybody ought to know how to step. But, you know. But everybody knows here. how to cha-cha. Right. Everybody knows how to cha-cha, but they don't all know how to step. Everybody right. knows that's, how to bump. That's the reason why how I did it. Because <laughs> the reason why I did it is because I knew R. Kelly was very successful on the steppers tip. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to, I, I thought about it, well, I want to do a steppers tune. But then I thought about it, and I said, well, more people know how to cha-cha than step, but nobody has done a cha-cha song. So I said, well, let me let me put together a cha-cha song, and that was the result, and it's doing well. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's getting a lot of attention quick. And that's Paul Jackson, Jr., a very famous guitar player that's on guitar on that with me. So, All right, excellent. Yeah, well, I, I love the uh, song, and I'll, I'll continue to keep playing it. Now, I wanted to share some important information uh, in regards to our, our main topic today um, with the listening audience. Um, for those, I don't know, I'm, I'm a, being a woman, I have my own little diseases and things that I have to be concerned about as a woman because, you know, we have breast cancer, cervical cancer, ovarian cancer, and then we have, the, you know, lung cancer and, and heart disease that affects every every you know person man or woman but uh i didn't know much about prostate cancer and then i i did a little bit of research and i know there's a, it's been a lot of people dying from it and they're not in the age bracket that they originally said was the, the majority of the people having the cancer it's like they're getting younger and younger right. so now let me just read out some some factors that i came across okay um First of all, it's the most common non-skin cancer disease in America, and it affects one in six men, and that's a lot. Um, the people who are most at risk have certain factors. Um, age is the, one of the factors. The older you are, the more likely you are to be diagnosed with prostate cancer. Although only one in 10,000 men under the age of 40 will be diagnosed, the rate shoots up to 1 in 38 for anybody from 40 to 59, and then 1 in 15 for ages 60 to 69. So you still could be at risk even if you're under the age of 65. And um, if you are unfortunate to be that 1 in 10,000, then, you know. Now, more than 65% of all prostate cancers are diagnosed in the men that are over the age of 65. So basically, you know, try to prevent it and try to be aware of it. It's going to help you in avoiding it altogether. Uh, another factor is race. African-American men are 60% more likely to develop prostate cancer compared with Caucasian men who are nearly 2.5 times as likely to die from the disease. Conversely, Asian men who live in Asia have a lower a lower risk. Now, that's amazing. Uh, another factor that um, is part of that is the family history and genetics. So a man with a father or brother who developed prostate cancer is twice as likely to develop the disease. 
and the risk is further increased if the cancer was diagnosed in family members at a younger age, like less than 55, or if it's affected three or more family members. That's crazy because I, I know a lot of generational cancer um, victims. Um, in addition, some genes increase mutational rates, while others may predispose a man to infection or viral infections that can also lead to prostate cancer. Now, another factor to take in consideration is where you live. So for men in the U.S., the risk of developing prostate cancer is 17%. But for men who live in China, it's only 2%. And that doesn't mean you just pack your stuff up now and move to China. (laughs) You're born in China. You're part of China. You've been there for, like, your life. However, when Chinese men move to the Western culture, their risk increases substantially because of the environment. Men who live in cities north of 40 degrees latitude, which is like north of Philly, <laughs> Columbus, uh, Utah, have the highest risk of dying from prostate cancer of any man in the United States. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to get it because you live in California. That just, that's just one of the factors. And they're, they're talking about people in general, like they're using millions of people as a determination from this. Now, the, um, the effect appears to be med- mediated um, by sunlight during three months of the year. Like who's paying attention to that? And it reduces the vitamin D level. So I know a lot of men who are not taking their vitamins. And, you know, vitamin is men, you know, hard men, they don't get into that. And then they don't realize that these things are important. Even if you don't take the vitamin, then you need to be eating food that has that vitamin in it and eat them darn fried chicken wings and, and burgers and all that stuff. No, there ain't no vitamins in that. Now, there are risk factors in aggressive versus slow-growing cancers. Um, in fact, in the past few years, they learned that prostate cancer is several diseases with different causes. So I know a lot of people didn't realize that. The more aggressive and fatal cancers likely have different underlying causes than slow-grown tumors. Like smoking has not been thought to be a risk factor for low-risk prostate cancer. Most people think smoking is giving you any kind of cancer. It may be a risk factor for aggressive aggressive prostate cancer because anything you do once you're in that zone is going to make it worse. Um, now, like I was just saying, a lack of vegetables in the diet, especially broccoli and green vegetables like that, is linked to a higher risk of aggressive prostate cancer. You can avoid a lot of these things by eating a proper diet, including lots of vitamins coming from fresh-made vegetables, not cooked to, to it ain't even green anymore vegetables. And then um, it, it doesn't affect that much on low-risk cancer. Body mass index, this is a huge factor, <laughs> and, and no pun intended. A measure of obesity is not linked of being diagnosed with prostate cancer overall. In fact, obese men may have a relatively low PSA level than non-obese men due to the dilution of the PSA and a larger blood volume. Now, obese men are more likely to have a aggressive disease if um, they're tall in height, they have lack of exercise and a sedentary lifestyle, high calcium intake, and they're African-American, and they have a family history. That changes the risk when it comes to your weight. So now there are so many different things people can find out about prostate cancer, and I hope that giving you this today is going to and, and just make you curious as to find out, you know, the, what it is, 
what things to look out for. Now, there are symptoms that a lot of people are not aware of that they think it's just something else and they don't pay any attention to it. And I'm going to ask you, Donald, now, first of all, tell us when you discovered that you had it. Hmm. It's the mother-son syndrome. What happened was I was, uh, you know, uh, thought I was in great shape, you know, no symptoms, no nothing. I was just fine. And uh, like most men, I was shying away from going to getting a physical. And, you know, my mom being who she was, she kept pushing me, baby, go get a physical. Just go get a physical. Go get a physical. I'm like, but mom, I'm fine. I'm fine. Go get a physical. I said, all right, well, let me just go get one just to satisfy you. And... um I went to the doctor, and he did, you know, a physical from head to toe, and then contacted me the next day after doing a blood test and said, hey, man, uh, your PSA level is is uh, not where it should be. Uh, I think we need to do a little bit more probing on your uh, prostate to see what's going on. So I went in, and we focused on the prostate. And uh, mind you, I had no symptoms at all. And um, after he found out through my PSA reading and he turned me on to a urologist, I went to the urologist. The urologist checked my PSA level, my genie level, which shows the aggression of the prostate uh, cancer, if there's any. And he said, uh, we need to do a biopsy to make sure that you don't have cancer. I said, okay, fine. So we do the uh, biopsy. And uh, next couple of days, he called me into his office and, you know, sat me down. And I could just tell the vibe when I walked into the doctor's office that it wasn't cool. And he said to me very calmly, uh, Mr. Tavier, you have cancer. And at that moment, uh, the spiritual side of me took over. Uh, I've always had the personality and attitude that I don't stress worrying about things that I know God can take care of. And that's the mindset that I went into during that conversation. So my next question to him, okay, so what do we what do we do to to deal get rid of it? And he had to pause because at that moment he realized that I wasn't tripping. I wasn't worried about the big C or I wasn't worried about anything. I was worried about, okay, so when do we start curing it? Because I'm immediately on that path, you know, because I know that um, uh, it's early detection so is there correction for the early detection? And I know just from my being aware of, of, of other people that I knew that, that went through that. I had an uncle that had prostate cancer, but he decided to do a prostectomy where they removed the prostate totally. And, you know, and um, I had talked to him briefly prior to me even knowing what my problem was. 
that you know he had it removed and what the the, the downside was of that was and um uh so I wanted to do more research so the first thing I asked the doctor was you know well you know how's the aggression of it do you know this is something that we have to deal with immediately or you know uh, uh, do I have time to do my research and he says no it's not aggressive at all you have time to do your research but you have cancer so I um opted to find out what my options were here in the United States. And at that time, which was a year and a half ago, there was three options. There was prostatectomy, where they totally removed the prostate. There's seed implant, where they put six radioactive seeds. They implant them around the prostate to keep the cancer dormant, or they do radiation. And um, after my researching all three, well, first let me back up a little bit. I had to consult my family because I knew that at that moment my uh, loved ones were going to go into uh, <laughs> uh, a whirlwind once they hear, once anybody, your friends, once anybody hears you have the big C, everybody goes into freak mode. They don't know if you're going to beat it or if, you know, this is it. And we have to watch you wither away. And um, I didn't tell a lot of people in the music industry because I, uh, I'm a believer that a lot of things are manifested through vibrations and how people think about it. So if I don't give people that negative choice to think about something like cancer, I don't have to worry about people worrying about me and thinking that I'm on my way out. Mm-hmm. What I did was I only told my loved ones and my closest friends and my family. Nobody else knew. And um, I did the research for about three to four months while I'm monitoring the aggression of the cancer. And I saw my options here in the United States, which were the radiation the seed implant, which happened to be the same process that, or same procedure that Charlie Wilson decided to do. And I have to tell you a story about that, too, uh, how me and Charlie were hanging together and we both didn't know we had prostate cancer. Um, and then the mm-hmm. other thing was this, this, the um, prostatectomy, where they removed the prostate. Now, inside of these procedures, let me explain this. When you have a prostatectomy done, which kind of explains a lot of the fear that men have of even wanting to find out if they have a problem, first thing you got to understand is once you get a certain age, your prostate enlarges as anyway. So that means that your urine flow slows down. We can't write our names like we used to on the wall when we were kids <laughs> when it was time for us to <laughs> urinate. We used to stand up on the wall and, and write our names, right? Well, when you get older, when you get at the age of 35 to 40 years old, that urine flow slows down. And that's because the body adapts to a natural uh, growth, which automatically, because of your hormone and testosterone changes, and it causes your prostate to enlarge. Okay. The other deal was I had to find out, out of the three procedures, which one was going to be the lesser of the three evils. 
So I opted to do the radiation, which I thought was the lesser of the three evils because it was only a radiation treatment, which meant that you have to do radiation for 43 days consecutively and 15 minutes a day, which I talked to my urologist and I explained to them, well, you know, I, I travel with a world-renowned group and we're always on tour, so can some of these days be broken up because on some of the weekends I need to travel out of town. He said, yeah, we can we can we can get around it because you don't have, you have a non-aggressive cancer. I said okay. So my group didn't even know. Lakeside didn't even know. They didn't know until it was time for me to do the and I'm not talking about radiation. I'll get to that in a second. So what I did was I went on the, went on the internet and I started doing all the research I could to find out. Of the three procedures that exist here in the United States, what were my options and which one I thought would be uh, less evasive on my body. That means no cutting, no blood, no having to recover, other than when you do the radiation, it has a tendency to zap your energy. So halfway into the procedure, you know, you... you, you you're tired and you need to regroup for a day or two and then you're back with it. So I opted to do the, the uh, radiation treatments. When I decided to start my treatments, I was sleep. I woke up. My TV had been on all night, and I woke up to a television show that happened to have five of the top urologists in the United States and some of the top urologists in the world on this TV program. And they were talking about a procedure called HIFU, which stands for High Intensity Focus Ultrasound. So uh, as I'm getting dressed to go and do the standard American procedure, I see this information being given by these top urologists about the HIFU treatment. And first thing came to my mind was why wasn't I given this choice? Why isn't this an option? I don't care if it's on the moon. It's my life, so it should be my option of where I go, where I spend my money, if I have to do anything. It should be my option, not the bureaucracy of the United States um, Medical Association to determine it and how it's going to be paid for. Now, for the people here listening to the program that either know somebody in California or they are residing in California listening to this, hear this out. Once you are diagnosed with prostate cancer here in the United, I mean here in California, there's a program called Impact. I M P A C T Impact that will automatically give you full coverage medical insurance free here in California. If you're diagnosed with prostate cancer, you get full coverage medical insurance. I didn't know that, and I don't know anybody else that knows that, that hasn't, even some that, that that have been diagnosed with it hasn't been given this information. So I hope this is reaching people that know somebody, that may know somebody that, that, that is going through what I went through and can relay this information. It's called impact. Um, so what I decided to do was when I got to the 
doctor's office after I got dressed. I wanted to question my urologist about this procedure that these uh, urologists are talking about that happened to be a 98% success rate, and they've been doing it in other countries around the world for the last 12 to 14 years. So why is the United States not up on this game? Well, you know, I think over the last uh, couple of years, we've learned a lot about uh, the medical injustice that we are getting here in this country as a people and how it's all about the money, not about the cure. It's like, you know, putting a rubber bumper on a car when you know that bumper is going to fall off. So it ain't about making the car durable. It's about the comeback. And the same thing exists in the medical field. It's about the comeback. It's not about curing you. So I got dressed, and this is the intervening part, and probably the reason why we're having this conversation right now. Mm-hmm. I got dressed, put my clothes on, I walked to the door, grabbed my keys, soon as my hand hit the doorknob, the phone rang. And the cancer center that I was attending to start my treatments told me that, Mr. Tavier, we have to postpone your treatments because the radiation machine has just broke down. Well, immediately, like I said, and I always will say, that the spiritual side of me kicked in once again. And I knew that that was a sign from God that he had a different path for me to go than the normal path of getting these radiation treatments. And that was really um, uh, confirmed after I found out that the machine broke down and I immediately called the television station they informed me about the hospital that governs this treatment here in the United States in South Carolina. And uh, I ended up calling the hospital that same day, talked to the um, uh, one of the board members, and they explained to me that uh, we do have doctors here in the United States that if you decide to do the treatment, they will accompany you out of the country, perform the procedure, and come back with you. So I didn't have a problem with that. I had a problem with why I wasn't told earlier and given the option to do it. So I immediately contacted my uh, urologist at that time, and he explained to me, yes, I know about high food, but it hasn't been approved here in the, in the United States. And I said, hello, I'm not just in the United States, I'm on the planet. So if it's on the planet, I have access to it. And I just want to take this time out while your radiation machine is not working and find out more information about the high food treatments. So he gave me uh, a website that I could go to and a medical code which allowed me to go in and do research on the high food. And as I started reading it, I started noticing all of the accomplishments that it has made um, and the testimonies of people who have had it. The success rate was off the chart. And I'm like, well, this is something I want to really find out more about. So I contacted the hospital. They put me in contact with one of the top urologists that happened to be on that TV show that morning here in L.A., and I called him up. Dr. Pugash is his name, 
in Los Alamitos, California, and I called him and made an appointment to go see him. And he had had a very pleasant spirit about him. So I, you know, I keep mentioning spirit, but it plays a big part in us having the correct mindset to deal with illness. It's mental stability that we have, because I'm a believer that 75 percent to 80 percent of any cure that we deal with is the mindset that we take in cure, because the body is a miracle in itself to be able to handle and to heal itself when it's accompanied by the right mindset. So I went and saw him, and he examined the prostate, and he noticed that it was at 55 centimeters. And then to do this procedure, it has to your prostate has to be at 50 centimeters. So he uh, said, well, we need to shrink the prostate. And there's two ways that we can do this. We can either go in and shave the prostate, which is a standard method here in the United States, or we can put you on a medicine called Lupron. And the reason why I'm bringing this up about Lupron, I wanted to have the same conversation I'm having with you guys right now on either the Oprah show or the Monique show or any talk show, and I'm still available to do that. I have to take my hat off. I have to take my hat off to all women that have gone through menopause because this is what the deal was. <laughs> when I talked to the doctor about Lupron or about shaving it, I asked him, I said, well, to shave the prostate, is it going to feel anything like the uh, biopsy that I had? He said, yeah, more than likely. And I said, well, no way am I going to do that. Because when they do a biopsy, they go through the rectum with a tube that they insert six long needles in this tube, and they shoot it into the prostate to extract the tissue to determine what the condition of the prostate really is. Not just from a test by the finger. They can do that and just know it's enlarged. That just causes them to probe further to see if there's a problem inside of the prostate. And that pain, at the time when you get that, procedure done it doesn't hurt but when the medicine wears off that it's supposed to numb the procedure it is it is it is it is, it is it's, in a, it's in another world so i decided to do the lupron the lupron's side effects are a male menopause whereas do you go through hot flashes I wanted to go on Oprah, I want to go on Monique's show, and I want to bow down to every woman in the world that watches those shows because now I know what it's like when a woman says, don't bother me, I'm having hot flashes right now. <laughs> Trust me, brothers. There is nothing like it. I swear to God, it's like somebody... You walk from a 60-degree room into a 150-degree room in less than a second. It's that, it's that intense. So, women, I understand. I totally get it. You have my respect for you that's going through menopause. Now, back to what happened. So, after we got the prostate down to the size that was required, uh, which is the, the 50 instead of the 55, I was able to fly to 
Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, where the team of top urologists from the United States accompany you there. They treat you like you're the president. Um, and I had the procedure done. Now, the the logistics behind the procedure is here in the United States, the three procedures that you have, which two of them have an A and B section. And what I mean by A and B section, the first thing is called a, a prostatectomy where they totally remove the prostate. If you can picture this in your mind, you have a bladder. From the bladder comes a urethra tube that runs to the penis. That urethra tube is what the fluid, the urine from your bladder is able to expel from your penis. When they do this procedure, they look at it because the urethra tube goes through the prostate, which surrounds the tube. That's why when there's an enlarged prostate, when it enlarges, it squeezes the urethra tube, which slows down the urine flow. That prostate sits on a bed of nerves that when they do a prostatectomy, they have to sever those nerves. Now, this, the A and B part of the statement that I made is one is done by hand, one is done by a robot. The robot cuts less nerves to remove the prostate, but it costs more to have the procedure done. The hand usually runs you between sixty and seventy thousand. The robot costs you between seventy and eighty thousand. Then you have a seed implant where they physically go in with six needles around the prostate and they embed six radioactive seeds that generate radiation constantly around the prostate. And then you have the radiation. The thing about the radiation is that you have tissue around the nerve bundle that over a period of time in the 43 days of, of, of the process, it damages some of the tissues that don't regenerate themselves. So that means you have less protection around the nerve bundles, and the nerve bundles can become vulnerable to more damage. The nerve bundle is what establishes your erection ability. So that's why they say through through that procedure, there may you know there may be and there may not be the chances are less that you have an erection uh, uh, percent uh, droppage in the seed implant not so much but the radioactive seeds are constantly around that tissue the prostatectomy removing the prostate you have to sever the nerve bundle itself which means that depending on how many nerves they have to sever sever to get the prostate out determines how much of an erection dysfunction can occur. This procedure that I had does none of the above. They go in through your rectum with a probe called a Sana Blade 500. And what it does is it has the, the uh, concept of a magnifying glass, which means that Remember what it's called, high-intensity focus ultrasound. Ultrasound works like heat. So they focus the, the point of the heat right inside the prostate to, the, to burn the cancer out. 
versus it's just like if you take a magnifying glass and you have an ant on the ground or a piece of paper and you're burning it, if you put your hands between that point, it doesn't burn your hand. It only burns where the focus is. So you don't have a problem of any damage being done to you, just inside of the the, the tumor. So <clears throat> I went in about 7.30 that, that night, I mean that morning. It's still kind of dark in Puerto Vallarta. When I woke up, it was still dark. Now, the procedure normally only lasts two to two and a half hours. It's a procedure when they go in, they do what they do with the Sauna Blade 500, and you wake up, you walk out. It's that simple. But what happened was, when I woke up, it was dark. So I asked my brother, I'm like, why is it still dark outside? He's like, man, you've been here. It's 9.30 at night, dude. And I'm like, okay, is there a problem? He says, well, I don't think there's a problem, but you need to talk to the urologist to find out what's going on. So he, the, my urologist walks in, and he explains to me that this is, if not the longest, it's one of the longest treatments in high food history. We think it's the longest. And I'm like, well, what were the problems? He said, well, we unfortunately had to go through five blades because of the thickness of your rectal wall and the positioning of you. We had to give you three epidurals. Epidurals where they had to paralyze my bottom half in order to do the procedure because you can't move. And every time mm -hmm. a sauna blade would break, they had to reposition it, and it takes almost two hours to do that. So at that time, I knew that I was fine. Um, I felt good. The only thing they did was they had to, you have to get a stomach catheter, not a penis catheter. They use a stomach catheter where they come from the the uh, uh, bladder through the stomach with a catheter for you to, to urinate, for your body to urinate. Now, the miracle side of it was that the reason why they give you a catheter when they do the procedure, it burns your urethra out completely. The heat burns it out. But your body, the human body, regenerates a, a new urethra tube from your bladder to your penis in seven days, which mm. is remarkable. Your body regenerates a new tube. And that's how they determine whether to take the tube out of your body is when you're able to, the catheter, when you're able to to urinate on your own and you can fill up 75% of the urination cup they give you to test you, your body's back to normal, the urinary tract. And once I was able to do that, I started going to have my checkups, and I've been in perfect condition ever since, thank God, ever since that. That's great. But the wow. most important now, thing that I have, go ahead. Go ahead. What I was going to say is um, now, being that the FDA has not properly approved of this yet because of certain things they're supposedly investigating or whatever as far as symptoms, um, any any repercussions to the treatment, everything else. Um, but I do understand that they're going to consider approving that come um, 2011, which would be great. Right. So have you heard any more about that in regards to them actually approving that? Yes. Uh, I think the uh, I think what they're trying to do now is figure out 
the cost of it because if you noticed in my conversation, the cost of the high food was cheaper than any cost that they've already implemented here in the United States. So now they have a cure that's cheaper than all the other treatments, which makes it a little bit more affordable to be cured than it is for you to put a Band-Aid on me and charge me more money. So I think what they're figuring out now is how they're going to govern the cost of the treatment. But uh, I'm so back to normal. That's the whole thing. I mean, I feel like I haven't been through anything. I haven't been through anything, but I know I went through something major, but the results were I'm back to normal. And that's the most important part is is it took early detection and it took the faith and the fate of God to lead me to something that would put me back to where I was before all of this even came about. And that's being normal and healthy again. I'm healthier now than I've ever been. Uh, we have to be careful about our diets. We have to be careful about our DNA, where we came from. We have to look at our family trees and study what our family members who have the same bloodline we have. I'm not talking about somebody you're married to, but somebody that you come from the same tree from and understand that we are uh, uh, we are as vulnerable as they were because we have the same blood in our veins as our uncles and our fathers and our grandfathers, and you have to do that research. And once you do that research, then you know what to avoid. You know that you are a candidate uh, for cancer or you know that you're a candidate for whatever disease your mother may have or your father may have or their parents may have, and it's just a bloodline. And like you mentioned earlier, it's about the DNA, it's about your climate, it's about your your environment, it's about your diet. That's really the most important thing is our diet. It's what we, you know, we, 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 we slipping and tripping and eating the wrong things. And like you say, what, one thing that I didn't mention, part of my healing process mentally, and I knew that I was going to have to go through this procedure, and I surprised the doctors because I went on a green diet prior to me having the procedure done for about a month. I went on nothing but salads and chickens and um, I mean, and fish, you know, broiled chicken and fish and no red meat. Uh, I didn't eat a lot of sweets. I just ate green vegetables that, that produce photosynthesis in my body. And I noticed every time that I do that, even from that point, even now, that the quickest way I want to get in shape is I start eating live foods. I lose weight faster, and I feel the photosynthesis working in my body because the photosynthesis produces not only the vitamins that my body naturally needs, but it also produces energy, just like a plant. When a plant gets water and it gets sun, it gets strong enough to stand up and bloom. Well, that's the same thing that happens to the human body when we put the right foliage in our body. Right. Well, did you consider any natural, any natural products to use when you found out that you had it? Uh, yes, I did. I have a, a very good nutritionist here, Dr. Brooks, who owns a company here on the West Coast called Roots, and you can go on to his website as well, Roots.com. Uh, 
which um, he um, he put me on a lot of vegetables. It was that's what it was about. It was about natural natural foods. Natural foods in the body allows the body to naturally heal itself. And it's not necessarily things that we are conditioned to like out of taste, but to acquire a taste for healthy things is a process as well. It's just like I like sushi. Most people I know don't like sushi because it's an acquired taste. But once you start eating it, you get addicted to it because it tastes so good. So the same thing happens when you start eating vegetables that are dead and fruits that have all the natural vitamins in it that the body needs once you start going that route then you develop a taste for that and then all the stuff that you've been eating that's dead like meat like cooked vegetables that are overcooked then you start really tasting what is not natural and what doesn't taste good so you develop a taste mm-hmm. for the natural things and you, right, because it's um, not natural when you put that seasoning salt in it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, when you camouflage the flavor. Uh-huh. <laughs> you got what to steam it and eat it raw. You just eat yeah. it, steam it or eat it raw. You don't add butter, you know, because it has right, cholesterol in it. it. <laughs> you camouflage it. Because I know sometimes it's nasty. You know, to be honest, broccoli stinks, but it's good for you. Right. <laughs> Like asparagus, like asparagus. Okay. I, I, I've had a few of my friends, they hate asparagus. And I said, that's because you haven't had it cooked right. Let me cook it. And I cook it, and they start mm-hmm. requesting asparagus. And asparagus is one of the biggest things you can get for vitamin A, vitamin D. It has a lot of vitamins in it that once you develop the taste for it, you'll always want it. You put it in salads, you put it in all kind of dishes. But it's a lot of vegetables that when it's steamed right and you don't cook the flavor out of it, you get the real flavor of it, not the flavor that you camouflage. So it's it's all good to me. I love vegetables. <laughs> My grandfather was big on um, asparagus, and he ate it all the time. And he lived to be 86. He probably would have lived a bit longer, but when you get certain other things happening, like high blood pressure or, you know, heart issues or whatever that require medicine, mm-hmm. it breaks down your body's makeup, and, and then you, you don't have a, the best immune system anymore to certain things that happen to you. So when you get older, your body has to work a little harder to defeat all these different things but if you deplete this strength by taking all these chemicals for no reason at all, then you really don't have a whole lot of chances. Right. Right, exactly. You know, and that's why you see those things happen. Now, I'm glad that you brought that up uh, about, you know, all the different things. Now, I want you to tell men out there who are not paying that much attention to their health what they need to do in regards to be more aware to avoid, you know, either having prostate cancer or catching it too late? They need, first of all, you need to go to the doctor. You need to go mm-hmm. and get checked because, like, I'm going to re, re, uh, <laughs> re-say this over and over and over. I keep telling people this. There's no symptoms. It's like high blood pressure. There's no symptoms. And then when you start getting symptoms, then you got a problem that, is a lot greater than it was when you first got it. 
and we need to go get checkups. I know that the concept of a man sticking his finger up your butt is uncomfortable for most. <laughs> I know it's uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but just use the analogy. Would you rather have a finger up your butt to tell you what's wrong or a rod in your neck to tell you get by? <laughs> I know that's a little harsh, but it's real. I know that's a little harsh, but it's real. You brothers need to go and get a checkup. There's a lot of clinics that won't charge you for a prostate exam. I'm really trying to become an advocate and get people on the right page in terms of we need to put more emphasis in information because that's really the the fear of it is lack of information of, okay, if something's wrong with me, the doctor tells me that something's wrong, what do I do because I don't have the money, I don't have the insurance to cover it. But, see, there's programs all over the country that they're not blatantly just putting it out there that they cover you because a lot of men are being diagnosed with prostate problems or prostate cancer. But just like in the state of California, when I was, you know, when I was diagnosed with it, I never knew anything about if I had prostate cancer that there's a uh, uh, program called Impact that would give me 100% medical, 100% medical. I didn't know that. So you brothers out there need to do two things. First thing you need to do is go get checked up. Make sure you're all right. If you're not all right, then you need to find out in the state that you're in what programs they have to supplement those of you who don't have insurance to take care of the problem because there's probably nothing worse than knowing something's wrong but not having the resources to get it taken care of. But all mm-hmm. I like I all I say is, you know, it's just about you getting the information in your in your particular areas before you even go. Hey, you know, if if I'm diagnosed with this then who do I contact to get the supplemental income, you know, supplemental treatment or um, coverage that I need to to deal with this this situation? Because it's everywhere, it's everywhere. But like I said, you know, it's just lack of not knowing, it's the fear of not knowing. But I know something's wrong, and uh, do something about it. Then not know something's wrong, and then it's too late. That's right. Well, I want to make a point to everybody, not just men. Uh, in regards to um, natural products and in regards to chemicals that are um, cancer-causing and disease-causing, um, I did a lot of research some time ago because I actually was having a, a hard time with my scalp. I didn't have any natural oils left in my scalp, and my hair was just like whatever was there if i put oil in my um hair it just got absorbed like my hair turned into like a sponge because i didn't have any of the natural oils and it was because there was uh, sodium sulfate chemicals in my over-the-counter um shampoo now when i wash my hair it's like we're being taught that it's bad to have oil in your hair so when you wash it you try to get all of that out you need those natural oils so me, I'm sitting up there washing my hair like a crazy person like three or four times and then putting conditioner in there. So it was drawing all the natural oils out of my scalp when I used anything but, you know, the, the um, sulfate. 
So basically, I did some research on it because I was tired of having this problem. And I found out about this chemical, and I went to the store, and I looked in every bottle of every different brand, and they all had um, those sulfates in it. Now, recently, you know, they removed some parts of sulfates that are the more dangerous ones. Um, so they have different names now. Now, what I found was when people start bringing up all these different chemicals and over-the-counter products and stuff like that, it makes people get to be afraid in the business of uh, chemicals and beauty products and all that, and they think that they're not going to have any sales. That's why you see stuff still sitting on the shelf. What happens is they they think that we don't know anything about chemical names, and a lot of people don't. So what they do is just change the name around, make it look like the one you heard about on the news is no longer on the bottle, so it's safe. But that's not the case. A lot of chemicals have multiple names for that chemical. So it's basically still in there. It just got a different name. So my my step was to, um, to go and research some of these names. So I went to the Environmental Working Group's um, website, which is www.ewg.org. On there, they have a, um, a, a part of their site called Skin Deep for, uh, like, skin products. If you go into that link, they have a search there, and you put any chemical that you see listed on the back of that bottle, and I know they make it so small people don't pay attention to it, but you try to take any one of those chemicals, you put it in their search, they will bring up every item in, that's made that was approved by FDA that has that chemical in it. It will also give it a rating from zero to, I think, it's either five or eight. Um, the rating tells you how much dangerous it is. So if it goes past two, it's pretty not, it's pretty unsafe. Um, if it's zero, is the best thing. And then the rating covers whether it's carcinogenic or if it causes things like liver disease, blindness, um, things like that. What people don't understand is that the FDA has approved a lot of these things because it doesn't give you an immediate danger zone. These are chemicals that are in very small, minute little degrees put into these things for preservatives or the, the agents used to clean or whatever. But the thing is, if once it gets into the human body, it's, it doesn't, like, go away. It's not biodegradable. It just sits there. It takes time, like years and years and years, to break down inside your body. It doesn't go anywhere. It stays in there. And then when it breaks up, it becomes more carcinogenic in your body. And, and then it starts eating at your healthy cells. And it starts doing things that cause you to have these diseases or these um, cancers. And that's where it's coming from when you're like 65 and you've been using certain products all your life. And all of a sudden you're trying to figure out why do you have this. So you got to really do your research to find out, you know, what's in the stuff that you have, and then you need to go and get the alternative that you can use that is safer for you and your children. Because right now baby shampoo has formaldehyde in it, and we all know they use formaldehyde to um, embalm dead people. So why would you want to put that in your hair? So they have natural products that you can use that don't have these chemicals. They have natural products in shampoos and hair oils. Um, people should look at their lotions and remove anything that has mineral oil in it. Mineral oil is the same stuff they use on cars and, and machinery. It's, it's a petroleum family um, item. So you need to just remove everything that has mineral oil 
and also do your research to find out the other things that need to be removed from your cabinet. Um, a lot of times women get these breast cancers and skin cancers and things like that because deodorant is not really good for you. It has a lot of chemicals in it that go into the breast tissue, and, they, and it's been proven, so you can look that up. Um, they have natural stuff that's really volcanic ash that's put into, like, um, it's made in a way where it's in this little natural thing that you can use um, to be deodorant. Um, people in other countries don't even need deodorant because they use natural stuff to, to get rid of body odors and stuff like that. So I wanted to bring that up because I think people need somewhere to go to to do the research on natural products to avoid certain things um, that give them cancer and also things that go in your food that cause you to have cancer. Because the seasons you are killing the natural uh, properties of the vegetables with could be causing you cancer. So you have to do your research and check all those things out. One of our um, members in the chat room, that's my, 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 my favorite radio host, I Feel Great Radio, just mentioned a link for um, a, a natural item that um, is something that's been, I guess, researched and investigated. It's a, a leaf. Let me go back to the information here. Um, something that helps to cure cancer. Um, it's called graviola. And I'm going to give you the link, so because we're running out of time, but I want to give everybody the link. Um, www.graviola, G-R-A-V-I-O-L-I-O, leaves.com. Go check that out and read the information they have on there because I think it's fantastic. Now, hopefully everybody's learned a lot from this conversation that we've had today, and I, I want to thank Donald for coming in and, and talking with us and sharing his personal story. Now, Donald, what what would you like to say to our guests before we leave for the evening? Uh, so all I, our I, I, I hope that I was able to, if I've touched one person and inspired another person to um, to think about what I said, if they have somebody in their family that this information to if any of you need to contact me about more information about the um <laughs> the lifesaver you can reach me at another hit productions with an s at yahoo dot com another hit productions with an s at yahoo dot com or you can reach me on facebook and uh I'll answer any questions. I'll put you in touch with these life-saving uh, that do exist or your loved ones. Uh, so, hey, I, and uh, I hope everybody was um, enlightened just totally about music world as well as the medical world that I've experienced. Thank you. Oh, I, I know that they were, and I know I was. Another link I'd like to share is... Um for the HIFU um, treatment, it's uh, www.internationalhifu, that's H-I-F-U, dot com. Um, you can get more information about it there. Um, of course, you can also do your research in regards to prostate cancer, to know your symptoms, to know what to ask your doctor about as far as any, um, you know, any, any procedures for your checkup and any procedures for the actual disease if, uh, unfortunately, you should get it. 
what your other options are. Also look into natural options, especially if it's caught early, and do not assume that you're not 65 so you're not going to get it. Um, it can happen to anybody um, under the age of 65. We just lost Patrick Swayze. We lost a lot of other people that are well-known to that disease. Um, is this a, cancer is something that actually affects every human being the minute we come out of that womb because cancer is basically a breakdown of the cells that happens according to your environment. And if you're not eating properly, you're not getting the right exercise in a bad environment, um, nine times out of ten, you may be affected by cancer, which is basically increasing the uh, decrease in the strength of your good cells and increasing, the, you know, the bad cells, and therefore you will end up getting it. And then, of course, if it's hereditary, a lot of times it's not hereditary because you guys have this one chemical in your body that gives you cancer. It could be you all eat the same food all the time. Everybody sitting around, everything's given eating that you know, that burnt food or that over-roasted food from the same chemicals, it, it, some things are behavior-oriented. So you just have to start looking at your life to see what things you can do to change your, your you know, ability to get cancer. There's a lot of different things out there to do. So I hope everybody is learning from this and, you know, um, paying attention to your body signals because, Every time you have a little pain doesn't necessarily mean you just pissed off because all the kids are making all that noise. You could have headaches because you might have you know, some brain issue going on or some other type of thing going on. So do your research. Find out about everything there is to find out about and make sure that you talk to your doctor regularly. That's basically what I have to say. Okay. So now, as far as music, you know, we're going to continue supporting you with your music, and I look forward to seeing you live. <laughs> I hope you get over here to Philly. hope Me you get too. over here to Philly. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Go to iTunes and check out the Best Kept Secret CD. It's on iTunes, Napster, Rhapsody, any, of the, any major downloading site has it. And uh, I think that uh, the connoisseurs of music are really appreciated. I got some great people on it. From Paul Jackson Jr. to Marion Meadows to Gerald Albright, I mean it's a solid, solid, solid um, package. As well as the new CD that I'm working on called The Soul Lounge, and that's something that I didn't mention. That's a TV show that I want to try. I'm, I'm, I am doing. I'm developing here in LA, whereas I'm putting Midnight Special meets Soul Train. That means that I'm trying to create something for BET and Centric or Centric. Whereas, too, I'm having all the R&B artists from old school to new school, R&B, soul music only, no pop, no hip-hop, nothing against it, but this is where I want to go mm-hmm. toward, and where people will be able to tap into the TV show from their home. And every week, oh, that's good. Every two weeks, they'll be able to see major artists. And, you know, we when we did Soul Chain, we were pantomining and faking it. We had those young people were partying to the records. Well, this is going to be the real deal, just like as if you were at that concert looking at Kim or Angie Stone or Vivian Green or uh, Layla Hathaway or Mm -hmm. uh, Jill Scott, any of the real R&B soul artists, they're going to be on the show, and it's going to be real cool. So 
I'm, I'm just in development of that. The show is already formatted. If there are any backers out there that are interested in getting down with us, please contact me via uh, Facebook or contact me um, at another hit productions at yahoo.com and we can make it roll because I've already ha- already have the venue. I just need the finances to shoot the show. There's pilots. I've already got a commitments from all the artists that I want to bring on for the first ten pilots, and I have access to Kathy Hughes and BET to even take the footage after we get it to them. They want first shot at it. So very close. Wow. Very close. All right. Well, we're going to be looking for that because um, I'm certainly interested in it. And, um, you know, everybody else is going to be interested in it, too, because we really need to see that. So I think that um, I'm not sure we're still streaming to the public right now, but um, um, thanks again for popping in. And I'm going to um, bring you back on again so that we can uh, actually do like a Q&A with you and some other people in the industry. Um I would really like to go over more about what we talked about in the first half of the show and have some um, other people to address what's going on and tell us exactly what they're doing to make changes. Um, I actually saw a webinar about it once um, where they had three major label representatives up there. Then they had a reporter asking them, uh, what would make me want to take this deal from you? And um, they couldn't really answer it. So I want to bring them to the table, and I'll bring some artists to the table, and I want them to talk about it. What is changing in the industry, and what is it that you can do to help artists? Okay, cool. Let me know. Let's have that conversation. I will. Okay. Okay. Well, have a good night, Donald, and um, I'll talk to you later. Okay. All right. Bye-bye.